Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. Thanks so much for coming out tonight. It's good to be together in this room, which is, you know, they spaced it out six feet apart, but it's like not at all six feet this way. So I don't know why they bothered in the first place, but uh, we're jumping around rooms a little this semester. So we'll be in here, I think, a lot of the time, but they might move us up to the third floor one week or something like that. So we'll definitely get the word out about that. um, if we haven't met, my name is Lucas, and I'm the, I've been the campus minister here at UConn for 11 years now. So I've uh, been around a long time, seen a lot of UConn students, and love to uh, get to know and walk with you guys. So uh, my hope is to, that I would know you all better and uh, be able to be a resource for you, uh, be there for you in all the ways uh, that I might be able to serve you. I know Sophie and Taylor feel the same way. And, uh, we really want to be a community where we're there for each other and uh, we can be real with each other. And one of the reasons for that is that I'm convinced more and more that we live in a world that's not quite human. That's inhuman. Uh, a lot of the things about this world, uh, loneliness, uh, screens, uh, just a lot of the ways that life operates now are really just like soul-sucking, life-sucking and, uh, and that's why I'm excited to be, uh, I'm excited about community because I think community is where uh, life can be found and where we can push each other toward the Lord. And, um, and the Bible gives answers to, well, what is life really about? Because a lot of people say, well, here's the solution to our world and they'll propose a solution. And it's like, well, where did that come from? But what's that based on? And we believe that, Uh, The Bible tells the story of our world and gives answers based on what life is truly meant to be like and what life is for and what it even means to be a human. And so that's why we've been doing this uh, series this semester. We started last week where we're just going to go through the books of the Bible one by one, starting at the beginning and pick a key text from each one to look at. And so last week we looked at the book of Genesis and we read the story of Adam and Eve and their uh, turning from God and the fall of mankind. And uh, today, tonight, we're going to look at uh, the Exodus. The second book of the Bible is Exodus. And we're going to look at this idea of salvation and God saving his people. And with the big idea that to thrive in, in this world that God made, it, we made, we need to be captivated by the story of salvation. Uh, This is the moment in the Old Testament that matters the most. This is what all of the Old Testament points back to, this moment when God rescues his people miraculously. And just to give you background before we look at the text, uh, second book of the Bible. So what's happened so far in the Bible is that God has created a good world. And then his people, Adam and Eve, turn on him and sin enters the world. And so the good world is now sad it's now tainted it's now marred by sin and death and yet in the midst of it what we saw last week was that god though makes a promise right from the beginning that he is going to stamp out the evil in our world 
and make it the way it's supposed to be, that he would come and uh, crush evil fully and finally. And so that's the promise that's the background for the whole Bible. And so what happens from then on is that uh, God decides to do this through a family. So if you read through Genesis, you see that God chooses a man named Abraham. Nothing that special about Abraham, except that he's just a dude living in Iraq 4,000 years ago. And uh, but God chooses him and he says, you're going to be my guy. I'm going to start a miraculous family with you because he was like 100 years old and uh, he starts a family and it leads to his children, Isaac and Jacob, and they become a big family. And he says, I'm going to use your family for my plan to save the world. But the problem is that they go into slavery in Egypt So for 430 years, this special family, this family that God's going to use to save the world, are slaves. And then God shows up again. And he calls his man Moses. And he says, Moses, you're going to lead my people out of slavery. And he does some amazing things. You know, he sends the plague. The Pharaoh won't let his people go. And so he sends plagues and the water turns to blood and there's darkness and there's hail and there's locusts and there's gnats and there's frogs. And finally, the worst of them all, God strikes down the firstborn son of every Egyptian family. And finally, Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. And so God's people leave Egypt headed to the promised land, and then Pharaoh changes his mind and starts chasing after them. And that's where the story picks up. So a little longer passage tonight, but uh, it's an important one, so stick with me. This is Exodus chapter 14, and we're starting in verse 10. It says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove, back this, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces 
and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, uh, it's a long story from long ago and we need your help in making sense of what it means for our lives. We pray that you'd guide us. We pray that you'd change us through it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was reading this week about a man named Nicholas Winton. Uh, Nicholas Winton was an Englishman. And in 1939, seeing that uh, the Nazis were rising to power in Europe and hearing about the concentration camps, he made a bold move and he decided that he was going to save as many children as he could from the Nazis, as many Jewish children. And so in Europe, he arranged for the transport of 650 Jewish children that were headed for the death camps, uh, mostly from Czechoslovakia to England instead. And so 650 children, he is responsible for bringing them to England where they grew up in England, far away from the Nazis, far away from the death camps where so many uh, Jewish people went on to die. And there's a TV show in the 1980s, so uh, like 50 years later, this guy, uh, Nicholas Winton, did not publicize what he did at all, and not many people knew about it. Uh, But eventually his wife found out, he didn't even tell his wife for a long time, and they arranged uh, to gather everyone who he had saved, who was available in England, into one auditorium without him knowing it. And so they have this event to honor him. He doesn't know that uh, it's all those people are there. And, and so at one moment they say, who here in this room owes their life to Nicholas Winton? And the whole auditorium stands up. They're all like, you know, people in their 50s and 60s uh, who owe their entire life to this man who saved them when they were kids. Uh, it's a room full of people that owe their life to one person. Uh, they were saved by him. Uh, That's a picture of the church today. Anyone who belongs to God is someone who can stand up and say, I owe my life, my eternal life, my eternal fate and destiny to God himself. I'm I'm a person who was saved by God. And so I want to look at this idea of salvation tonight to help us see uh, what it means and how it's so important. And so I want to look at it at under three questions. I want to look at why do God's, what, what do God's people need to be saved from? I want to look at how are God's people saved and then why does it work in this story? So first of all, I want to look at what do they need to be saved from? 
what do these people need to be saved from? On the surface, it's an easy question, right? They're slaves in Egypt. They need to be saved from Pharaoh and Egypt. Uh, but the story reveals that there's a deeper problem here that they need to be saved from. We see it in verses 11 and 12 when the people start to complain about being rescued. They're like, is it because there's no graves that you brought us out here? Uh, didn't we tell you to leave us alone in Egypt? Which is like not at all what they told him. Like these are actually delusional uh, questions. And what they're showing is what their real problem is. Their real problem isn't that they were stuck in Egypt. That's not what their biggest problem was. Uh, their problem is that they actively avoid life with God. Uh, God's in the process of saving them, and they say, let's go back. Slavery, please. They're choosing it because it's what they know, and life with God seems really uncertain at this point. You know, they're thinking about being out in the wilderness, and they don't know what's going to come. They can't control how it's going to happen. Now, what should they have said? They should have said, well, God has sent, I don't know, 10 plagues already. He saved all our children while he struck down the children of the Egyptians. God can certainly save us. You know, a, a, a sea in front of us isn't going to stop them. But instead, they say, let's go back to Egypt. At least we knew what we were doing there. Okay, and the idea of salvation won't make sense to you if you can't identify with this idea that our real problem isn't just that we're enslaved, but that we choose slavery. You know, and you may say, well, how do you choose slavery? Well, I'll give you some examples. Like, have you ever said, I'll never do that again, and then done that again? Uh, have you ever been burned by a relationship that you keep going back to? Uh, have you ever started a semester saying, you know, like, I always get so anxious in college, and uh, my life kind of spins out of control each semester. And I, this, this semester is going to be different, though, and then it's not any different at all. The point is, you're always thinking about salvation. You're always looking to something to save you. Like, how many times do you hear people say, you know, I just need to, what? Fill in the blank. We say it all the time. Like, I just need to do this. I just need to, what? Have some money. I just need to get a job. Just need to, whatever. And whatever that is, like, the Bible would call that worship. It's what you live for. Uh, so, you know, we need to think about, well, what am I looking to for salvation and can it deliver? Like, how am I trying, what am I using to save myself and will it actually do that? Uh, can it save me ultimately or is it just helping me to cope right now, to feel in control for a little bit? Uh, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer from England in the 20th century says this, he says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Isn't that a picture of what our hearts are like? Uh, in Exodus, God's people are being saved from life apart from him, which is a life that they would choose every time, life apart from God. Not because it's better, but because it feels familiar, because it feels like I'm kind of in control. And they understand that something that we desperately need to understand, which is that it's either you know, serve the, whatever the things are, money, sex, status, comfort, or you got to serve God. But what you can't do is serve nothing. It's impossible to serve nothing. 
No one can serve nothing. Uh, you know, it just, you're always living for something. And so the Israelite mentality is, you know, I can go back. Life will be hard over there in Egypt, but I can work and, you know, I can make it work. And, you know, I'll probably be fed. I'll probably know what's coming the next day. And, I mean, if I serve God, though, I'll have to listen to him. He can take me wherever he wants. Uh, he's not obligated to tell me what he's up to, uh, even though at this point, God has promised to always bless his people. So they should want God, but instead they want the life they know where they feel like, well, life's not great, but at least I get to decide a little bit. Uh, so we need to see ourselves in the Israelites, okay? Uh, we resist, you know, our problem isn't just that uh, we're enslaved, but we resist God's salvation, uh, instead, we actively try to save ourselves. So I want to ask you tonight, what's your version of going back to Egypt? What's your version of saving yourself instead of allowing God to save you? What's your version of kind of settling for a cheap salvation? Uh, but the amazing thing in this story is that God saves people who don't want to be saved. He can save people who resist him, who reject him. Uh, so how are they saved? Uh, the story is amazing, right? They're saved by this decisive act of God where God does it all. Like he literally says, the Lord will fight for you. All you got to do is be silent. And he puts this cloud between, so there's these Egyptian forces coming with chariots and horses, uh, bearing down on them. And he puts a big cloud in between them. It's like prodding them on. You know, there's darkness on the Egyptian side and it's light on this side where they're supposed to go. He creates an actual barrier between their old life and their new life. And he opens up a passage through the sea for them. And amazingly, they walk on dry land. It's like, what more? Like, they have no choice but to just, like, start walking. And they do. And this might be a point where you sit, you're sitting here thinking, like, Lucas, listen. Nobody actually believes this, though, right? Like, it's a myth. You know, the waters don't just part. And if you think, I mean, I respect that position, I do, but if you say that, uh, you actually don't know a lot about myths because there's a lot of myths that are from around this time. But the thing about this story is that it's not written as a myth. And the way we know that is because no myth would make its own people look this bad. <laughs> like if you were going to write a story about the birth of your nation, you wouldn't be like, yeah, and we all didn't trust our God at all. Like, we were all so dense, and, you know, that's how our nation started. Uh, it's not written like a myth at all. Uh, it's written like an account of what actually happened. And you need to see that this is totally different from every other religion, you know, because God, you know, other religions, you know, the, the God provides a path to salvation. But in this, this God does it all. He is the one who does everything to save his people. Uh, sometimes people uh, talk about salvation, like, you know, you're drowning out at sea and God throws you the life raft, but you got to grab onto it. He's waiting for you to grab on. And that's not it. That's like, the, the illustration is more like you're dead at the bottom of the ocean and God dives down and pulls you out and resuscitates you and brings you back to life. Okay, God does it all. Now, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because if God does it all, you can't lose your salvation. If God saves you, you can't unsave yourself by being bad because it's not based at all on what you did. 
You know, if it's about like, well, I was a good, I was, I did a good job and then God saved me. You know, I, I helped myself and then he helped me up. Uh, so he kind of had to save me. Uh, then you could lose that, right? If you're unfaithful. But this, God does it all. And so you can't lose it. Uh, what, is, what is the way that God saves Israel mean for us? What does it mean that he does it all? Uh, it means we can stop earning our way to God. Uh, this God saves messed up people and he does it all. He doesn't wait for people to get their act together and save them. He saves them at their worst so that they can have new life. Uh, it also means we can be honest about our struggles. This is something we've been talking about a lot this semester, right? And, um, you know, why don't we talk about our struggles and our sins? And it's, I think it's because, well, I don't like really admitting that I'm a bad person. It's like if people found out what I'm really like, then I don't know. They would think I was a bad person. And what this is saying is you are a bad person. Like the, if you're saved, it means like necessarily you were a bad person that needed to be saved. And it frees us from this notion that we have to be a certain way to be acceptable to God or to anyone else. Uh, and it means also that we can love people that are not natural for us to love. Uh, it can make us love others because we didn't do anything to save ourselves. We didn't earn it. So we're not better than anybody else. Uh, back in 2015, a 19-year-old young man named Dylan Roof walked into a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed nine people there at a Bible study. He was trying to start a race war, and he was not repentant for what he did. Even afterwards, he said he wasn't sorry. And uh, he was arrested, obviously, and, and he had a hearing to, pope for, to set his bond, what his bail was, and... Uh, at that hearing, one by, they invited the families of those who lost loved ones from the church to come and speak. And one by one, the victims' families walked up to the mic and they said, you know, they say, you caused us immense pain, but we forgive you. Over and over, we forgive you. We forgive you. And even the sister of the pastor of that church who died said, we are the family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. You know, you see what she's saying there? She's saying, I know myself well enough to know that I needed to be saved. So there's no room in my life to be able to treat someone else like they don't. They can't be saved either. Like I'm better than them, even the worst of people. So think about you know, yourself. How can you grow in love this semester? Uh, who are the people that you can pursue in love this semester because you've been saved? Because you shouldn't have been saved, but you were. Uh, because God has extended his mercy to you, his glorious salvation to you. Uh, you've been loved. Okay, so now why does it work though? How, how does it work? in the end, the salvation of God. And this is key. It works because Moses steps in on behalf of the people. He steps in on behalf of the people and God uses him to save the people. You know, it's Moses who he uses to part the sea. Uh, It's Moses who relates to God on behalf of the people. And that's why it works. And, you know, this salvation points ahead 
to a future salvation. And this is a salvation where another man steps in on behalf of the people. Uh, Jesus himself, God himself comes. And Jesus is the better version. He's the true and better version of Moses. Uh, He steps in on behalf of God's people. And he, you know, like this was a decisive act. Jesus accomplishes the decisive act that saves us himself. And it happens at the cross. Uh, did you know Jesus calls, like there's a, par- a part in the Gospels where Jesus is talking about heading to the cross and he says, he was talking about the, his exodus. The sea crashing down, that was all about pointing ahead to the day when the waters would come crashing down on God himself so that his people could be saved. Think of the chaos of the chariots sinking in the mud, the water engulfing them. Uh, That's what Jesus took on when he carried his cross up the hill and died. Uh, We deserved it, and he took it. And he rose. You know, death couldn't hold him down, so he conquered death, and he's alive today to step in for you now. Uh, Jesus steps in for his people. This is a big deal for when we sin big. You know, you ever sin really big? Maybe your break was like this. Maybe the beginning of your semester is like this when you sin big and you think, you know, could God ever love me though? Like, look at what I've done. Look at my heart. And what this is saying is that what's going on behind the scenes in that moment when you're wondering, like, could God love even me though? I'm pretty bad is that Jesus is stepping in in front of the Father and saying, that thing that Lucas did, I paid for it. It's gone. We can only love him. There is no room for judgment for Lucas anymore because I have paid for his sin. Okay? All other God, everything else you serve will enslave you or kill you. Jesus, though, is killed for you. And now he steps in on our behalf when we act like these Israelites today. Uh, He loves you. You know, you may be disgusted with yourself, but with God, there's only delight for you, there's only delight in his people. You can't wear out his love because the act is already done. He's already died. And if you allow that truth to sink into the, that your heart, you will be saved. You will live forever. Uh, and the more you allow this truth to sink into the heart, into your heart, the more you'll listen to him and follow him and serve him. The more you'll give your life away and the more you'll love and the more free you'll be. Uh, the more human life will be uh, when we live inside this story of salvation. So let me pray for us and we'll have a last song. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of salvation, which is our story. We're thankful that you offer it to the worst of sinners. We thank you that you do it all. We pray that we would know it tonight. Uh, We pray that we would Uh, Turn to you, maybe even for the first time tonight, uh, so that you might save us and that we would walk in your salvation and be set free by it, that we would be people who love 
And we pray that you'd be glorified in us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.